Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 10, or started looking at Acts chapter 10, and met a man named Cornelius, who, as the name of this series indicates, is an outsider. And by that, we mean he's not a Jew by heritage, by birth, by tradition. He's not going to be listed in any genealogy in the Bible. His family's not going to be listed there at all. He's also not a follower of Jesus, but he's also not like completely a pagan who's worshiping other gods. It says, as we read, and we'll read it again in a minute, he's a God-fearer, or he feared God, which put him in a very unique category. We discussed that at length last week, so if you missed it, you can hit our website or YouTube channel or whatever um, and look at that again. But we introduced ourselves to this man in Cornelius, who is in a weird spot. He's an outsider. He doesn't really belong to any faith yet, but he's curious. He's seeking. He's searching. And as he's searching, the most unimaginable thing happens to him where he gets a visitation. And we're going to focus on that part of Acts 10, 1 through 8 today in sort of a different type of message, a different type of material, but I think it'll be helpful and instructive for us as we look at this visitation that Cornelius had in Acts chapter 10. So we'll read the same text we read last week, but attack a different part of it in a different way and see what the scripture says to us this morning. So it's Acts 10, we're going to read it now, starting at verse number 1, verses 1 through 8. And it says this, In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. So today we're going to focus on the second part of this eight verses, and that is the visitation that Cornelius has. So today we're going to talk about angels. So don't get freaked out. Don't get weirded out. That's the whole point of today. So the reason we're going to talk about this, it's very much topical. So we're, we're looking at this um, encounter that one man has, and we're going to pull from it really a, a topical issue here about angels. And here's why. When it comes to Luke's writing, angels is a huge focus. It's a huge theme of his writing. So Luke and Acts are a two-part volume. We've discussed that, but let's recap. So Acts is part two of a two-part work that the man named Luke writes. The first part, the book of Luke, is about Jesus, his life, his ministry, and it kind of leaves off when he ascends into heaven after the resurrection. And that's where the book of Acts picks right up. Acts chapter one, he's ascending into heaven, and then it follows his followers on their journey to create what would become the church. So in the book of Luke, which is 24 chapters long, Luke mentions angels 25 times, more than once per chapter. 
In the book of Acts, 28 chapters, angels are mentioned 23 times. So in Luke's writing, 52 chapters, he mentions angels 48 times. So my rule of thumb is if something comes up that frequently in that span of time, it's important for a reason. It's something that we should look at. So today we're going to talk about it, even though it's a bit different. Uh, it might seem a little academic today because we're going to kind of make a couple lists with a lot of scripture references to kind of get through this topic in a biblical understanding sort of way. But I hope it's instructive and helpful for us. Because not only does Luke mention it in his two-part work here 48 times, but also as humans, we are always, I think, curious about the supernatural. We're always wondering, questioning, asking, thinking about that aspect of the universe, which is real, but is almost always unseen. And we may not have experienced that as much, and so we're going to talk about today really two aspects of this topic of angels as we see it here in this appearance in Acts 10. And as we'll go through it, we'll see it happens a lot in Acts. We'll reference those quite a few times, but get sort of a holistic biblical view of the topic of angels. So we'll kind of look at what angels are not and what they are, and maybe some, some things that we have heard or believe that may not be accurate based on what the Bible says, and look at what the Bible does have to say about them. So that's kind of a two-part, one-two punch we'll have on this topic here of angels. And the first part, we're going to look at four angelic, what I'm going to call, misunderstandings. So four things that you may have heard about angels or believed about them or from some TV show or some other outlet somewhere heard or believed or were told that are either all out false or just somewhat inaccurate or maybe need some cleaning up. And so we're going to look at these, start out with these four misunderstandings about angels. And the first of them is that angels are eternal beings. There's sometimes this idea that angels were at the very beginning and they helped God with creation and they were, they were you know, a part of that process and they've always existed and that's just not accurate. Uh, we know from several scriptures that they are not eternal, but they are created by God. He is the only being, God is the only being, the Trinity, that have pre-existed everything. So even when we talk about we have eternal life, that's true in, on one end of the spectrum. But we had a beginning, Angels had a beginning. They may exist forever after their beginning, but they had a beginning. So let's look at this. Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, says this. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all the armies of heaven. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you twinkling stars. Praise him, skies above. Praise him, vapors high above the clouds. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command, and they came into being. If you notice on this list of all these things, that's not an exhaustive list of God's creation, but angels are listed in this, right? They're, they're as a created thing. Let all created things give praise. So they aren't eternal. They didn't exist from the beginning. Now, we don't know the timeline of exactly when they were created. So even what I said a second ago, that maybe they were before heaven and earth in Genesis 1. It's possible that God's like, I'm going to do this here on the side so they can just watch me work. Maybe that happened. And so maybe they were watching him make everything. They're like, hmm, that's pretty nice. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's beautiful. We don't know that. Um, but we do know that they had a beginning. They had an entrance point early on. And we know that they entered the world pretty early uh, in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall of man. They're there to guard the entrance of the garden so they can't get back into paradise. So even if you say that in a mythical sense, well, maybe that's just like a figure of speech or that's a way that, you know, people explain the events that happen about the beginning of the world. They're in the early stages of the scriptures at the, near the beginning, but not before the beginning, if that makes any sense. So only God is eternal, so angels are not eternal beings. Here's a second myth understanding uh, about angels, and that is that angels are deceased humans. 
You know, like pe- sometimes people will uh, say that, well, they died, now they're my guardian angel. That's just not accurate, right? There's not like this supernatural uh, change that we go through. When you die, you die as you, and you live on as you. You don't transform into this other winged creature that worships God. They are a different uh, set of creation other than humans. They are distinct. We can go to the Psalms also for this. Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? So that's man. Human beings that you care for them, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So I know at times that can sound offensive, what I just said, that your loved one is not your guardian angel. Now, can they watch from above? Maybe, I don't know, but they haven't transformed into an angel, okay? They haven't turned into a different creature. There's no supernatural evolution. We don't evolve into this other thing. You live as you, you die as you, you live on forever as you. And you can, you can, Flesh that out because would the inverse also then be true? People that die and go to hell, do they become demons? And you might have people in mind, well, yeah, that person probably did, you know, or that person isn't even dead and they're already a demon, you know. But there's no evolution or devolution. It's like there are different creatures that God made in different ways that he made them in different categories, and they don't just become other categories because of a certain thing that happens, okay? Humans are humans. Angels are angels. Um, So this, you know, they died and went to heaven. Well, they did, but they're still them. They're not an angel anymore. Here's the third myth understanding about angels is that angels are omni. So there's three characteristics of God. These are the, the all characteristics Um, omnipotent, which is all-powerful, omniscient, which is all-knowing, and omnipresent, which means everywhere simultaneously, present at all times. Those are three main ones that they explain only God. Only God has these omni-characteristics. So let's let's go through them just for a second. Omnipotent, angels are limited in their power. Even think about Lucifer, right, who has power, certainly, but it's limited. If you even think about the fall of Satan, Lucifer, in heaven, he had the desire to be like God, but he didn't have the ability to actually pull it off. If, if any angel had omnipotence, then they could overthrow God, or at least give him a really good challenge. But it wasn't even really much of a fight at all, as we'll see later on. It wasn't even really God that, threw, that defeated Satan out of heaven. It was another angel that defeated him, and he was thrown out of heaven. We'll see that here in a little bit. So they, they, don't have, they may have superhuman power or ability, but not unlimited power. So not omnipotent. About omniscient, angels are limited in their knowledge. And you might say, well, wait, 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 wait. Angels tell the future. They foretell the future all the time. That's a lot of what they do. They have a message about things that hasn't happened yet, and then it happens. Well, you can put them in the same category as a prophet, a human prophet. A prophet has that same ability. God, the Holy Spirit, gives them supernatural insight about a future event in some way to some capacity, and they share that. It doesn't mean that they're omniscient, that they know everything, but God gave them this specific information. These messengers who are angels are very similar in that way. God gives them knowledge about something, a message to deliver, which we'll get to as we close later, and then they share that limited information. They might even know what, what it means. They, I'm just the messenger boy or girl, okay? So they, they know what they're told in the message that God gives them. They're not omniscient. Angels are not omnipresent. They are sent on assignment. Usually when they were sent to someone. They came to someone. They came from a place to a place. See, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't go from place to place. He is always everywhere all the time simultaneously. So he doesn't have to travel here and there. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going to go. He knows everyone and everything because he is, um, he is omnipresent. Angels do not have that. They are sent 
on assignments. Now, they might, again, have superhuman speed or ability or reach, but they are not omnipresent. And quickly, I already kind of hinted this a little bit, but that's the same for any created being. So even Satan and fallen angels who are demons, they're also not any of these things. They're not all-powerful. They're not all-knowing. They're not, you know, present everywhere all the same time. There are limitations even to the dark side of spirit, the spiritual realm. So hopefully that's a comfort to you because sometimes you feel like, you know, he's always watching and always lurking. It's like, no, there are limits to Satan as a created being, to fallen angels as a created being. And the best way uh, to think about them is as defeated foes. So they're definitely not all powerful because they're already defeated in eternity future. So that's hopefully a comfort to us. And so I don't want us to give Satan too much credit on what he does or doesn't do or what he can and can't do. Don't give it too much attention. Now, we want to acknowledge the presence of that side of the spiritual realm, certainly, but not to overemphasize that, which we can sometimes do. Here's the fourth uh, misunderstanding about angels, and that is that they are to be worshipped. Now, you might think, well, that's a weird thing. Who would do that? Apparently, it's an issue. We read it in Scripture uh, a few times, but it kind of comes down to this. The thing that I just said about Satan and demons to give them too much attention, we can also sometimes do that on this side. And you might say, well, you're preaching a whole sermon about that, so aren't you? Here's the point. We're trying to look at a biblical view of this topic that comes up over 300 times in the Bible altogether. So as we're going through, that's kind of the beauty of going through Acts sort of section by section, verse by verse, is when things come up like this, it's an opportunity to discuss these topics that otherwise might seem out of place. But we don't want to give it too much attention. We don't want to give angels too much credit uh, because then we can get into kind of the overemphasis on those. And here's the, the danger of that. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Apparently, there was something going on here where there is actual worship of angels going on, or at the very least, people who are claiming to have a lot of angelic visitations or putting too much emphasis on them, maybe to look good in front of others. Oh, yeah, I talk to angels all the time, or I see them all the time. And so Paul's trying to set them straight here. He writes this in Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. He says very clearly, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. So for some in this church that Paul's writing to, there's an overemphasis on the supernatural, specifically here with angels, maybe even actual worship of angels. And so as we focus on them even today, the point is to have this balance of our view of them, because he says Jesus holds the body together. He might use angels to do certain things. They might have certain power and authority that God gives them, but they're not to be worshiped in any other way uh, or in any way. Only Jesus is to be worshiped. And we see the same thing near the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. John has a vision of Jesus at the beginning, and then an angel leads him through some visions. And at the end, here's what we read, Revelation 22, 8 and 9. John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things. When I heard them and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book, worship only God. That's the focus. 
even though we're talking about angels today, even though Cornelius had a vision of an angel and it pops up over and over and over, and maybe even as we'll see in a minute, angels may have had a part to play in your life at different times, whether you knew it or not. The words of this angel are key, worship only God. Only he is eternal, he is the creator, he is omnipotent, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent. He alone is worthy of worship. And so even as we focus on this topic, we, we keep our worship toward God. So those are the four misunderstandings there about angels. And so then the question is, well, what do angels do? If it's not those things, what are the purpose of them? What does God use them for? What are some of the things that they are designed to be and to do? And as we looked at we don't want to worship them, we see the inverse is true about them. The first main thing that angels do is they worship. Angels worship. You can go throughout, again, over 300 times angels are mentioned. A large majority of those, they are worshiping God. And even in a subtext, the things that they do are in a way worship to God. So when they go and give a message, they give it obediently in worship to God. When they do certain things in certain ways at certain times, everything they do is in worship to God. And so that's, that's what we look at here uh, on many of these occasions. They are singing, bowing, submitting, but a major feature of what they do is to worship God. So with that being that obvious, we'll move on to the other four because the, the final four, I think, have more interactive relation to us and how they interact with this world that God made as being angels that he also made. So apart from worshiping God, obviously, the second thing that angels do is they comfort or minister. You could even say encourage is a ministry that angels have. In some cases, angels are sent to us by God to comfort us or encourage us. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Near the end of his life, he's on his way to Rome in a ship, and there is a huge storm that breaks out in the middle of the water. And it's going, and people are freaking out, and they are fearing for their lives. But Paul speaks up to the group, and what he says is very interesting. So let's look at it. Acts 27, 23, and 24. This is Paul speaking to the people on this ship in the middle of a storm at sea. He says, For last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So Paul's point in making this statement is not to say, yeah, God spoke to me through an angel and I'm so important. It's comfort. This angel in the middle of this storm comforted me and now I'm comforting you. What does he say? You will get to Rome. Everyone on the boat will survive. So the angel came with the message of comfort for Paul. Then he passed on to the other people on board. Now the boat was shipwrecked, but they all survived. And he even lists that there were 276 on the boat all of them survived, and Paul did eventually make it to Rome. This angel comforted Paul, and then he in turn was able to comfort others. So that's a ministry that angels can sometimes have. We also see this at two key times in the life of Jesus. Two times, maybe at his lowest point in his physical existence ever, angels were there to comfort and minister to him. The first one is in his temptation before his ministry. He's gone 40 days and nights without food and water in the wilderness. And then after that, he's tempted by Satan. So can you imagine the physical toll that he's just gone under? The emotional, even spiritual drain of Jesus, who's fasted for 40 days and nights and then is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
But then Matthew 4.11, at the end of this, he gives a very interesting end cap to this story. So after he withstands the temptation, it says this, Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. Now, what did they do? No one knows. Now, if, if I were Matthew, and I were writing this down, somehow he knew that this happened. So did Jesus tell him? And if I'm Matthew, I'm like, okay, can you give me specifics? I'm going to write this down. It's going to be great. You're going to love this, you know? And he either didn't tell him or told him not to put it in, or we, we don't quite know. But I would be so curious to know, what did they do? Was it, did they, like, hook you up to an IV? I mean, did they feed you manna? Did they, you know, massage your shoulders? I don't, did they put you in a cryogenic chamber? Like, what did they do that ministered to the Son of God? But something they did ministered to him after 40-plus days of intense trial in his life. So interesting that we don't know what it was, but it would be crazy to know, I think, what that was. Then near the end of his life is the second occasion that we see that, that angels ministered to Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying the night he's going to be betrayed. The next morning he's going to be beaten nearly to death, then carry a wooden cross through town, and then be nailed upon it to suffocate until he's dead. And so can you imagine that's what he's praying about? He's got that in the forefront of his mind. He knows it's coming. He knows it's happening. He knows what's about to come to him. He can only imagine the pain and the torture and the agony that he's about to undergo. And in that moment, an angel again comes to him. Luke 22, so this is again Luke, the same guy that wrote Acts, writing this, Luke 22, 41. He walked away about a stone's throw from his followers who were also praying and then sleeping. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Verse 43, then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And like in the wilderness, we don't know what the angel did. Did he give him like a halftime pep talk, you know, like a coach, like you can do this, you know, whatever? Like we don't know. Uh, Did he hover over him and give him strength or warmth? We have no idea, but we know that Luke also records that supernaturally in his greatest moment of need and agony and knowing what's about to come, an angel comes to minister to him. We don't know exactly what the details are, but I found this um, quote from a man named John Gill, who was a pastor in England in the 18th century. And here's what he says about this moment in Luke 22. He says, The angel was strengthening him under his present distress against the terrors of Satan and the fears of death by assuring him of the divine favor as man and of the fulfillment of the promises to him to stand by him, assist, strengthen, and carry him through what was before him. So in some way, the angel, in either a word or just in his presence, sort of reminded the human nature of Jesus, yeah, this is not going to be fun, but there's a point to this. There's a goal here. That's even what he prayed before the angel came. If there's any other way, Father, let this pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then the angel came to even undergird that belief that Jesus seemed to have. He seemed to have, okay, no, I'd rather not, but... I want what God wants. I want what the Father wants. The angel came to him in that moment. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you didn't even realize it until we're talking about it, but maybe you've had these moments where just in a random time of prayer, you've sensed added courage about something that's coming ahead. Or or maybe you just had a, a sense of encouragement in the midst of a really difficult time or season in your life. Maybe in the midst of turmoil, you've had just this overwhelming peace that surrounds you. 
Now, certainly the Holy Spirit can provide those things. But it's also not out of the question to think that God would maybe also send, in addition to that, an angel into your life, whether you realize it or not, whether you saw it or not, whether you even knew it was there or not, to give you this added encouragement and strength, just like they did for Jesus. It's not just him. It's not just Paul. I believe that God still works the same way today. He can do that. It's biblical to think that at times God may send angels in your midst to comfort and strengthen you. And like Jesus, both in the wilderness and the garden, you may be completely on your own in those times. So there's no other way to explain that other than the Holy Spirit and maybe God sent a messenger to comfort me or encourage me. Like you're not listening to a song or a sermon or a podcast. You're just kind of on your own, but you just have this sense of peace or relief or comfort. That's one of the ministries of angels, I think even today in our life. Maybe God sent an angel to you to minister to you like he did to these others in Scripture. The third thing that we see from Scripture that angels do is they fight. This might be a little strange to consider, but sometimes we think of angels as like the little babies on the clouds with a harp. You know, oh, that's a cute, no, 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 no. Angels are some bad dudes. They don't mess around. I don't know if they're trained in the art of kung fu. I don't know if they have weapons training. I don't know. But I'm telling you, there are times that when angels show up, like things happen. Heads get bashed in. You know, we we see that in Scripture. We see it one time here in Daniel chapter 10. And we'll look at the context of this verse in a second as well. But let's look at this description uh, of this angel encounter. Daniel 10, 13. For 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. So there's something spiritual happening blocking Daniel. Then Michael... He's a bad dude, okay? One of the archangels came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So he's hearing this from another angel. So an angel's already fighting on Daniel's behalf, and he basically calls in for backup. And so he calls in the baddest dude he knows. He calls in General Michael to come and take care of this other evil spirit up somewhere in the spiritual realm so that this angel can come and deliver a message to Daniel. That's what he's saying here. I had to come to you, so I called in, you know, the backup. Michael came in, and he's now battling. And so we see here the context is Daniel said he's been praying for three weeks about something. He's been asking for uh, some, sort of incur- or some sort of vision that he feels God has for him. He's praying for something, and it appears that there were evil spiritual forces trying to intercept or interfere with that. We don't know what that looks like. We don't want to pull anything from that. But that's what we see from the rest of Daniel chapter 10. And so this angel called in Michael to assist so he can come and give Daniel a vision that the rest of Daniel 10 fleshes out. So these angels are fighting. They are battling in the spiritual realm. Now Michael, the bad man Michael, okay, the bad dude, he comes in again in Revelation. In John's Revelation in chapter 12, this is a pretty amazing thing to consider how powerful Michael may be. Revelation 12, 7, John's revelation, he says, then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Now, Revelation's weird because it's hard to tell what's future, what's past, what's going on. It's all kind of a jumbled mess. But we can attribute, if you want to attribute this to the, the past where the, the third of the angels who are fallen, it says that the, the dragon swept his tail and pulled them down with him. So again, we're seeing that it wasn't necessarily God that 
made them exit. It was Michael and his angels that defeated this other army trying to battle in the heavenly realm. So again, Michael's not messing around. He doesn't have a harp. He's got a sword, and he knows how to use it, and he's willing to use it. He's going to knock some heads if he has to. So angels fight. They are geared up for battle. Jesus even talks about when he returns, he's coming with angels. And when you read other parts of Revelation, again, they're not coming to play patty cake with the devil. They're coming to defeat this, eter- this nearly eternal foe till they're gone, till it's all over, till they have the victory, which already has happened, right? It's just that we haven't seen that or lived it out yet, but it's an assured victory that the angels are going to lead this in battle. Now, Christ comes with them leading the charge on the white horse, but his angels are behind him, and they're going to do, do some dirty work. They're going to bash some heads of Satan and demons, and I'm ready for that. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. So I believe also that this, this sort of thing even happens now, because we are under spiritual attack. You are under spiritual attack, okay? It's just a fact of of reality. Now, we don't always see that spiritually. That's why in Ephesians 6, you know, Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual powers and heavenly realms. But there is a spiritual battle going on, and it's not not just one-sided. So again, in Ephesians 6, Paul does say, put on the armor of God so you can withstand. But angels fight. We know this. They have fought. They are fighting. They will fight. We, we can be rest assured that when you put your armor on, not only is the Holy Spirit with you, not only is this armor going to help you, protect you, not only are you, is your spiritual uh, nature going to fight, but there are angels around you that are, going, that are fighting with you, fighting this spiritual battle pretty much nonstop. So you can be encouraged that you're not fighting on your own, but that you have an army of angels who are prepared and ready to fight along with you. And then here's the fourth one, uh, that's connected, it's similar, but it's distinct, and that is angels protect. So they worship, they comfort or minister, they fight, and they also protect. Angels seem to not only fight in the spirit realm, but they also can protect physically. There are occasions in this. We've already seen it in, in the book of Acts a couple of times, and we'll see it again later on. So in Acts 5, we know that when the apostles are arrested for the second time, well, first it was Peter and John, now all the apostles are arrested. They're going to be questioned the next day by the religious leaders for preaching in the name of Jesus. Let's look at it. We've looked at it a few weeks ago. Let's look at it again. Acts 5, 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So we see, and we'll see a very similar story later on in Acts 12 at the very end of this series in a few weeks, where Peter once again in prison, once again an angel helps with another jailbreak. And so we see angels used in this type of way. There is a physical uh, aspect where at times they intervene for the protection of God's people. One of... uh, a really famous story from the Old Testament shows this in an, in an interesting way as well. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's the prophet Elisha, and he's being hunted by an entire army who are after him, thinking he's kind of a double agent. He's letting uh, the king know what's going to happen before they're attacked, and that's why they always win these battles. So they're, they're coming after him. I don't know if they have a warrant or not, but they show up on his front door, and they're knocking, and they're asking for Elisha, and here's what happens. 2 Kings 6 verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. 
the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. So Elisha knew what this young man did not know. He knew what the army outside did not know. They think we're surrounded, but they're surrounded. Horses and chariots of fire. There are more on our side than on theirs. And it made me think this week when I was looking at that, First John 4, 4, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit is inside us, but God also sends angels um, to protect us. He can, he can do that. And he's sufficient to do it himself, but there are times where in addition to that, he sends angels to physically protect us from harm. We see this also in the Psalms, Psalm 91, 11, and 12. I told you there's a lot of scripture today, so hopefully you love the Bible because um, you've got a lot to think about this week, okay? Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says, For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And you might think, wait, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. The, the devil used that verse, so I can't use that verse. Wrong. <laughs> Because he used it, that means he doesn't want you to use it, so use it, you know? Um, just because Satan quotes scripture, does that mean we don't believe it? No, he's a liar. Jesus says the truth is not in him. So he will use a scripture or twist it in a certain way or make us think a different thing about it than what is really meant to be thought. It doesn't mean the truth of what's there is not true. And so uh, Satan, really, the reason he twisted this was he did quote it, right? But he used it as a test for Jesus to test God the Father, which in a different scripture, we cannot do. It's against God's law to do that. Do not test the Lord your God. And that's what Jesus responds to him with. It's not that he even twisted the words of this passage. It's that he used them in the wrong way, which is equally wrong. But the truth is still there. There are times, uh, we see it in Old and New Testament and in the Psalms, where God can send his angels to protect us. So it was January 31st of 2011. I was driving um, to our house with Jackson in the back seat. He was two years old. And we are, we're driving, and then there's a huge truck that comes and hits us from the side. And we flip in the air. We're, we're on, you know, on the top of the car. We're spun the wrong way. The front of the car is just destroyed. And somehow, both of us walk out without a scratch. Now, you could say that's a coincidence, that was a close call, that's an amazing thing that, wow, I can't believe that happened. I mean, you could also equally biblically say that God sent angels in that moment to protect us. For what reason, I don't know. For what purpose, I I don't know. What would have happened if that wasn't the case, if it were the case, I don't know. Um, But, I mean, you you can easily, I think, biblically say it's more than just a coincidence, There is something else at play here. And maybe you have those types of stories yourself. You know, some near misses. How did I make make it through that? How did I survive that moment? There's no way I I should be alive after that, whatever that thing is in your life. The Bible clearly and powerfully shows us there are times when angels can intervene on our behalf for our protection. That can happen. It is not out of the realm of possibility to say that. It is not unbiblical to say that. What we want to be careful of is that we don't put too much focus on that because then we get into the angel worship thing, which we aren't to do. But still, God has them for a reason and a purpose, and that is certainly can be one of them. It leads quickly, before we get to the last thing, it leads quickly to this idea of guardian angels. Is that a thing? Is that in the Bible? As far as I can tell, it's not in the Bible either way. 
So it doesn't say there is no such thing as a guardian angel. It doesn't say, yes, everyone has one. It just kind of leaves it open. Now, again, we know that there are thousands and tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands and millions of angels out there. So there's more than enough to go around. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has their own, but when one is needed, God can send one to you. So if you want to believe that you have, you know, like Barnaby, you know, as my guardian angel, we hang out all the time, and he's always around, you know, I guess you can go there if you want. I don't know if you want to name him or, or her, um, but still, you can do that. But again, we want to focus on the attention is to Jesus. Not thank you, angel, for saving me. No, no, thank you, Jesus, for sending your angels to protect me. Thank you, Jesus, for doing these things in this way for my good and your glory. So that's the only thing I would caution against is that we focus too much on the guardian angel thing. God sends them if we need them according to his will, and I'm okay with that, okay? Here's the final thing that we'll look at for a minute as we begin to close, and that is that angels tell. This is, the reason we saved it for last is twofold. One, this, I believe, is the most important job of angels, their primary job, and it's directly tying in to the text in Acts chapter 10. So they do all these other things, but this one specifically we see most often, and we see it here in Acts chapter 10. It's actually the Greek angelos is where we get the word angel. It actually means messenger. So that's obviously, if it's in the name, it's the primary job of this being that we call angels. And we've also seen this aspect, specifically angels giving a message or telling something to someone several times in the book of Acts already. At the very beginning in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection, and the disciples are just there watching. And so here's what happens. Acts 1 verse 10. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So these guys are looking up, just kind of waiting. Hmm, you know, is he gonna, when's he going to come back? I, I can still maybe see his foot, the bottom of his foot a little bit. You know, it's so great. And it, the angels are like, hey, guys, hey, 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 wake up, snap. No, it's not that he's gone. He'll come back. But remember, he told you to do something while he was gone. Go do that. Right. That, that's what they, they have a message to him. Hey, hey, guys, stop. Yeah, he'll be back. Don't worry about him. He's fine. He can take care of himself. You do what he told you to do. You go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, and everything's going to be just fine. So the angel comes with that message in, at the very beginning in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 8, we already looked at Philip, right? He was sent by an angel. So it's Acts eight twenty six. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, if an angel said that to me today, I don't know if I'd want to go down that road right now, okay? The way things are right now, I'm like, ah, I'm not sure about that. Are you sure that this is not a trap? So that's where he went. So you can even see here, like current day, you know where that is because if you watch the news, you know Jerusalem to Gaza, you know the road he's going down, right? So he goes there. The angel sends him on an assignment with a message. And when he gets there, it's interesting because as we'll see in another example in a second, he, that's all he's got to go on. That's the only instruction he has for this angel is go to this road to that place, and then he's got to figure out what to do next. And the Holy Spirit leads him to this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the scroll of Isaiah, who's also another outsider. And he's like, I don't know. So Philip knows, okay, this is why the angel sent me here. The message led me to this man. So he goes to the man and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, well, I need somebody to help me. So Philip explains to him Isaiah 53, shares the gospel with him, and he is transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And then soon after is baptized 
in water. But it started with a message from an angel because angels tell. And then here, we'll look at this again. We looked at it at the beginning. We'll look at it at the end here. Acts 10, uh, verse 4, the, the message that this man Cornelius receives from this angel. I'm picking it up at the middle of chapter or verse number 4, Acts 10. The angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Remember, Cornelius is an outsider. He's not really praying for an angel to visit him. He may not even know that angels exist. He, he's, an, he's a total, complete outsider to this whole religious sort of thing. He's kind of curious. He's seeking. He's searching. But then an angel comes and delivers this message to him. First, he sees God sees you. These gifts to the poor, God's received them. So, yeah, he, he sees you. He says, God's received your offering. And then he says, hey, send some men to find a guy named Peter in Joppa. That's like 30-something miles away. So, that's not, again, not a lot to go on. Okay, where exactly in Joppa? How many Simons? Probably it's Simon who's staying with a guy named Simon. Oh, that narrows it way down, Angel. Thanks for that info, that deep, you know, intel I was, you know, looking for. But the angel didn't give him a lot to go on. He just gave him a simple message, but it was Cornelius' response that was the key. One example, or really several examples that we see condensed where angels come up a lot is around the birth of Jesus. So in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2, we see angels everywhere talking to all kinds of people about the same event or series of events. Quickly, in Luke 1, Zechariah is told by an angel about the birth of John the Baptist. Later in Luke 1, Mary is told about the birth of Jesus. In Luke 2, shepherds get an announcement about the birth of Jesus from angels. Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, gets a vision from an angel or a dream from an angel that says, hey, yeah, yeah, Mary's telling you this crazy story that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. She's right. So the plan's the same. The marriage is on. The baby's coming. Let's go do this thing. Then after that happens, in Matthew chapter 2, the angels warn Joseph again of Herod, who's going to try to find this baby, and tells him, flee to Egypt. So in just, these, in just this birth narrative story of Jesus and John, we see at least five angelic visitations all at once. Angels tell. They are messengers. And as we see in Luke 1 and 2, Matthew 1 and 2 with Cornelius, our job is to respond correctly to the message that's being given. So the people, you know, Mary, especially in Luke chapter 1, um, she says, may everything you've said to me happen. That's her immediate response. Like a, a teenager who's getting ready to get married is being told by an angel, you're, you're pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Her response is, okay, let's do this thing. That's crazy levels of obedience from Mary. The same thing from Cornelius. This angel comes to him as an outsider, gives him this strange short message and he says okay go 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 find this guy so again the focus today has been on angels but as we really as we really bring it to a close here the main task of angels is to give a message and so then our task is whoever gives the message whatever it is whenever it is that we then just respond we believe and obey whatever god says so the 
Cornelius, again, his response is key. And as he meets Peter, we'll look at that next week, his life will change forever. But the first step was this message followed by his belief and obedience. So here's the deal. If an angel gave you a divine instructions, I guess believe and obey. As hard, that, as hard as that would be to do, that, that's the key that we see here. If God himself speaks to you, believe and obey. As you read the Bible and are challenged by the Bible, that's primarily, I think, how God speaks. Believe and obey what the word says. And more important than any angelic visitation or any other thing we've talked about, Jesus himself already has appeared. And he's already given us instruction as his people. And so our goal then is to believe and obey. As he speaks, we listen. As he guides, we follow. My prayer is that our lives would be lives of genuine faith that believes and obeys. Lives that may be aware of angels but respond to God through belief and then obedience. Let's pray today. God, we close today and thank you for uh, your word that it uh, instructs us, it guides us, and even as we look at this maybe strange topic today of angels, uh, it gives instruction and guidance even on that. Every area of life that is there, your word is powerful enough to give us that instruction. And as humans, uh, we're, we're curious about the supernatural, we're curious about the spiritual realm, And so I thank you that you give us insight on things like angels, that you don't just leave us wondering. Some things we just have to wonder. And some things about angels we don't know or we have to fill in blanks or just, I'm not sure. But there are enough things there that we can get directly from your word that will help us to view these angels correctly. And so we pray that as they serve you, we would serve you. That as they worship you, we would worship you. That as they are involved in our lives in whatever way that is, that we would just say, okay, thank you, God, for blessing me with this angelic visitation or this message or this protection. Thank you that they're fighting alongside in the spiritual realm. May the focus not be upon angels who, as the the angel in Revelation said, I'm just a servant like you. But may may our focus be on the God of the angels on Jesus, who is leading this army of angels. May our focus continually be upon what you're doing, what you're speaking, whether it be through an angel or through someone else or through a different uh, way uh, or means, that we would say, God, our focus is on you. Thank you for angels when you send them. Thank you for what they do. Thank you for their ministry. But may they just be an example that all they do is in worship to God. So may all we do be in worship to God. I pray that even today we'd walk out of this place with that attitude of trusting you, obeying you, and putting you first in all that we do, and just saying everything I do is to worship you. Thank you today for all those who are here. Keep us safe as we leave this place today and bring us back next time ready for more and more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.